Welcome to Defiance. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I have an interview with Valentina Pereira and Wilfredo Gomez. Valentina is a journalist and filmmaker based in El Salvador who has been covering gangs, and Will is an ex-18th Street hitman and gang member who turned his back on gang lifestyle after being imprisoned and deported from LA to El Salvador. Now, El Salvador has a long history of gang violence. It regularly tops the world's most dangerous countries and is amongst those with the highest murder rate per capita and is one of the deadliest countries in the American subcontinent. While I was recently visiting South and Central America, I stopped in El Salvador and sat down with Valentina and Will. Now, Will has an incredible story. After moving to the US as a child, he quickly fell into the gang life and after impressing the older gang members, became a hitman. This soon ended with Will in a US prison and deported back to El Salvador. Following deportation and after finding religion, Will turned his life around and dedicated it to helping other gang members in similar situations turn their back on violence and crime. And Valentina has been following his story for an upcoming film, and I sat down with them both and got an amazing insight into El Salvadorian gang life. But before we get into that interview, I do also just need to thank my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin, consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. Are you a Bitcoiner? If not, and you would like to learn more about Bitcoin, then please check out my other show, What Bitcoin Did, which Kraken also sponsors. And I also have a beginner's guide on there, which can help you understand everything related to Bitcoin if you're new to it. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. By not having a controlling party required to validate transactions, Bitcoin is both trustless and permissionless. It is also an opt-out of government fuckery. And as Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom. If you want to find out more, head over to kraken.com. Also, if you enjoy Defiance and want to support the show, please do leave me a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show. Follow me on social media and share this out with your friends and family. If you do have any questions about this or any of my other shows, please do feel free to email me. My email address is peter at defiance.news. The reason why we fight is to draw attention to issues and to fix it. Resilient. Resolute. Defiant in the face of impossible odds. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money. Hundreds of protesters turned out singing Glory to Hong Kong, an anthem of defiance. What's the accent there? Is that, is that an LA accent? Yeah, I grew up in the States, California, Los Angeles. Yeah. You were born there? No, I was born down here in but the South. You were born here? Yeah. Oh, when did you move out there? I was 11 okay. when I left. Okay. Do you remember much of it when you were... Yeah, I remember some. So what was the change like from <clears throat> here to L.A.? <clears throat> well, it was chaos, poverty, extreme poverty, and then to a wannabe dream, I guess, American dream. Which part of L.A. was that? <clears throat> uh, West Los Angeles yeah, yeah. and South Los Angeles. Okay. West is in <clears throat> how close to Venice? Not too close. That's the beach area. I'm okay. talking about like Staples Center. Area. Okay. All right. Okay. Where the lake is where. Yeah. Pico Union. Okay. Latino area. Latino area. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then south, which region? Uh, south Central Los Angeles, 82nd and Figueroa. Okay. That's pretty dangerous down there, right? Um, it used to be. Yeah. Yeah. Not anymore. Not well, they've redeveloped it. There's some nice restaurants, but. Yeah. Well, ne- well back in the days, it used to be ghetto. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, and then when you first moved across, so you were 11, did you settle into school okay? 
Well, actually, it was a pretty shocking experience going into a different country, you know, different culture, different language, you know, um, discrimination a lot. Okay. Uh, trying to fit in into a new culture, you know. Did you speak in any English when you moved? No. Right. Not one bit. Did you move with both your parents? Yeah, both of my parents. Did they speak any English? My dad, yeah. He did? Okay. Not so my mom. And by what age were you speaking English? Maybe when I was like 14, 15. So a few years to I was fluent. Yeah, I was fluent. So with that, does that mean you were naturally drawn to a Latino crowd of people who culturally were the same, you could talk to, knock around with the same kids? I guess... Um, Somehow I was, I, I wouldn't call it forced, but I was attracted to it because I was trying to fit in in a different culture. Uh-huh. And gangs were like a big thing back in those days. And, you know, their style, you know, the way they looked, you know, their popularity, you know, that kind of attracted me. And, and I saw that a way of, of fitting in, being accepted. Right. Okay. I get it. So... Before we jump into that, I also want to talk a little bit to Valentina about the film, because this is the connection. You're a lot more into this than I am. Mm-hmm. My experience of El Salvador is uh, it's very small right now. What happened, I, in December I was in an event in Uruguay, and Michael said, oh, you should come and check out El Salvador, and <coughs> I, two days later I was there. And then I went away, and uh, you know, after my experience of coming in, because my only knowledge of El Salvador is murder capital of the world most dangerous city in the world so I expected to come into a war zone and actually I didn't feel I felt relatively safe much threatened (laughs) no I didn't it's a beautiful place as well it is and that reputation actually is a shame because a lot of people would visit here Mm. so I wanted to learn a bit more I did go down the uh, gang's rabbit hole because I've been looking at UK gang crime in Scotland and in London, trying to look mm-hmm. at the patterns. There are some differences, but there are some similarities. And then I've got a broader interest globally, but I'm very early, so there's a lot I don't know. The depth of my knowledge is I know of the two primary gangs, 18th Street and uh, M13, but I have a cliched view that everybody is covered in tats, mm-hmm. with big white t-shirts, long blue shorts and the white socks, right? And I didn't see anyone who looked like that when I came the last time. But I want to learn a bit more. Um, So, yeah, thank you both for joining us. Thank you. So let's let's talk a bit about the film first. Mm -hmm. Um, You're a journalist. Mm -hmm. How did you come to start making the film? And was there an original plan or did you go into just to find the story? So I moved here at the end of 2016. I used to live in Washington, D.C. I worked at the Obama White House, part of the okay. communications team. And I was doing all of their Hispanic press. And part of my portfolio was uh, Latin America and specifically the Northern Triangle. And when I was at the White House, I remember there were, of course, in, uh, I wasn't at the White House in 2014, but in 2014 there was a, hum- a big crisis at the border with a lot of miners coming from Central America. And then there were subsequent waves of migration. I mean, there's always been irregular migration from Central America to the U.S., but I just remember sitting there in the meetings with all of the top, top, top-level government people, all of the intelligence that you could possibly imagine, and everything was basically boiled down to the gangs. 
it was everything we ever talked about in Washington, that these people, you know, there was a humanitarian crisis, these people are fleeing a war zone, the gangs are just completely destroying everything, right? And I remember at the time, of course, there was the Clinton-Trump election, and I remember joking, saying that if Trump were elected, I would move to El Salvador and kind of study the gangs myself. Because you didn't think he would. I never thought that. <laughs> Nobody thought he would. <laughs> I never ever thought that that was going to happen. Okay. But I told enough people by then, and then he got elected. And so I said, well, I guess I'm <laughs> going to move to El Salvador. So that's what I did, and, and I've been here ever since. And, um, Are you El Salvadorian? No, I'm actually, I was born in New York, but I'm of Venezuelan descent. Oh, Venezuelan descent. Yeah. Interesting. I know, you were just you, there. We were just there yeah. for uh, two days. Uh, well, we could have a whole conversation yeah. about that. And I'll talk I about know. that at the end. I was there in 2017 covering a bunch of different things over there. But um, yeah, Venezuela is Yeah, <laughs> well, I've, I've got so many, so many different thoughts about Venezuela yeah. on a wide range of topics. But again... I mean, I had a great time. Loved it. The food. Yeah, it's amazing. The food's really good. Yeah. Really good. Okay, so we'll come back to that. So why was it El Salvador that... Because El Salvador, from my view, was the epicenter of, of the disaster. Okay. I mean, you do hear, of course, there's gangs all over Central America and Guatemala and Honduras, etc. But it always seemed like El Salvador was the worst. And I wanted to go to the place where people feared the most and said that things were at a... At, at, at the worst so I moved here I mean everything we ever heard was El Salvador, El Salvador, El Salvador. Yeah. so I moved here and I wanted to see and just like you just said I was expecting to roll up here and see these tatted up people everywhere almost like just like AKs or something Yeah. and when I moved here in fact the first year that I was here I didn't come knowingly I didn't come across a single gang member almost the first year that I came here and I was frustrated. I was like, well, where's the gang? Like nobody wanted to talk about it. I mean, I'd very naively, I'd go ask people like, can we talk about the gang? And they'd be like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> yeah. was, what? <laughs> you know, everyone was like, you're crazy. And so I couldn't, I didn't, I didn't get the access that I needed the first year. And then by complete, by the grace of God, as some of us would say, I stumbled across this church and it's been ever since that was in October of 2017 and right around the end of that I started you know very it was very uh low budget filming with an a7s2 back then I had a partner that was helping me uh, a little bit at the beginning but then from that I've it's just been me with my camera you know with Will and following Will's life and following the evolution of this church and it's completely different than what I expected that I would encounter. So I've seen the trailer. Thank you. Just want to see the film now. Yeah. <laughs> but I've seen the trailer, uh, you know, just cards on the table. I'm not an overly religious person. Yeah. yeah. But quite interestingly, I I'm very supportive of religious projects because mm -hmm. If that is a tool to bring people together yeah. to change their lives, I have no problem with that. that I, think it's, I think it's a good idea. But I saw the trailer. Um, well, you'll probably know this, but during my research, expecting the cliche and the tattoos and everything, somebody actually said to me, the thing is about the tattoos is that most people don't get them here because they identify you as a potential gang member and you, you don't want to be identified as a potential gang member. So starting at that point, you know where the cliches start let's go through some of the myths as well but the the cliche appearance of a gang member is 
that comes from me seeing footage in prisons and also seeing footage in America. Mm-hmm. So why, why do we have this kind of cliche view of how gang members will look when here in El Salvador it, isn't, it doesn't appear to be that? Well, I guess um, an American gangster is something totally different than a Salvadorian gangster. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's two different worlds, two different cultures, nations, and, and uh, you got to take into account the poverty that this country has. Uh, back in the States, you know, wearing a pair of Nikes, a white tee, that's a thing to do out here. You know, people can't afford a pair of Nikes. Word. You can't know, afford tattoos. Can't afford tattoos. <laughs> right. And I guess one of the reasons why, you know, not a lot of people get tattoos. Well, now a lot of people get tattoos. It's part of the culture now. It's growing. Uh-huh. You know, it's it's uh, becoming more a- accepted, you know, for you to have tats and, you know, for you to, you know, express yourself that way. But um, probably about three to four years ago, it was like a taboo, you know, for you to get tats. It was like, you know, you putting your life in jeopardy. You know, because you could be targeted as, as a gang member, you know, and therefore be discriminated as one. Right. How connected are the gangs here, MS-13 here to MS-13 in the U.S. and 18th Street here? To, is it, are they actually connected in terms of a structure of the gang or are they just identifying themselves as being associated? I feel that um, that's part of the history that um, both gangs have, you know, 18 and MS, both of them were born in America. Yeah. They were created in LA. I did not know that. Yeah. And then MS and 18 were deported, you know, members, you know, there were Salvadorians that fled this country during the Civil War. Yeah. Eventually got in trouble back over there in America and and therefore got deported. Came over here and became founders of these gangs, these groups. So somehow they, they identify themselves with America, you know, mm-hmm. because that's their roots. Now, as far as being connected, I, I feel that, yeah, they probably have some type of communication, you know, but they don't share the same ideology. They don't have the same rules. They don't have the same structure, you know. As a matter of fact, they don't really sympathize with each other, yeah. you know. Okay, let's let's deal with both gangs first. Okay. There are more, there is actually more than the two gangs I am aware, but these are the primary the two. Biggest. What is the difference between the two gangs? And why would you join one or the other? Is it just purely to based on geography? Yeah. What are the differences between the two? Well, back in the day, back back in the days, one was thought to be a original Salvadorian gang, which is MS thirteen. Yeah. And the other one was thought to be a Mexican-American gang, which is 18th Street. Okay. So maybe that's the only difference there is. Right. I mean, 18 has always been known to be a much more open gang. Like, they've had black 18th Street members. They've had people from all different... But so uh, has MS. They have Oriental people. Now, yeah. Asian people. But before, MS was exclusively Salvadorian in its in its origins and then it has expanded yeah because it, it, it wasn't a gang at the beginning right it was more like a like a crew like a bunch of stoners people with long hair heavy MSS. metal t-shirts and smoking pot and Sounds just like hanging me out at 18 yeah. <laughs> 
MS. Yeah, I think MS. it used to be called a- a Mara Salvatrucha Stoners. Stoners. Yeah. MSS used to be the it was original name. Just like name. a little crew, you know, yeah. like a little group of people just hanging out and smoking pot. Yeah. Listening to heavy metal music. Yeah, but then of course when they started going to the California prison system and they started meeting, you know, Mexican cartels and stuff, and in the prison system is where they really learned well, the they violent. Had to, they way. had to structure. Yeah. If not, they were going to become victims exactly. in prison. Exactly. So there they got very, very violent inside the prison system. Almost radicalized. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Okay. What period is that in the history of the gangs? And where did you come in? Did you come in at that period of time? Or did you come in after they'd become more violent, more coordinated, more criminal? Well, when I got to the U.S., um, MS-13 was MS Stoners. Okay. You know, so because I was Salvadorian, I kind of liked that group, you know. Yeah the MS Stoner. But because I lived in an 18th Street area, I, I became more aware of the local gang. You know, me going to the park and going to the school, you know, hanging out with friends that had brothers that, you know, were involved in the gang. I became more uh, like a sympathizer of 18th Street, you know. I didn't, bec- I didn't become a member right away. I was just more like a kid that was hanging out at the park and yeah. used to talk to them all the time. And then that school that I used to go to had both gangs, you know, had 18 and had uh, MS Stoners. But like I said, you know, MS Stoners wasn't a gang yet, you know. And um, I guess it was just, you know, a part of my life, you know. I, I guess it was, I was destined to be 18th Street. I don't know, you know. Yeah, but it doesn't sound like at the time that was too much trouble, anything for your parents to be worried about. Like, I imagine a family from El Salvador now moving out to the U.S., you know, their 12-year-old, 13-year-old kid hanging out with, you know, 18th Street or MS-13 is a scary thing. It's a scary thought. Something you want to keep them away from. But for you yeah. at that time, I mean... No, it was more like a, like, like part of culture, like I said, you know. Me, you know, living in a Latino area and, and having a lot of um, rejection, I guess, you know, going to school... You know, I was bullied sometimes, you know, because of my accent, mm-hmm. because, you know, I was, you know, a kid that just, that had just arrived from El Salvador and, and people used to try to like bully me, clown me, make fun of me. So I, I saw the gang as a refuge, you know, as, as, as protection, acceptance, belonging, you know, as a way to fit into, into the American society. And I think that's, that brings us an important point because a lot of the re- the reason this came to be was when all of these Central American refugees were going to LA, to different parts of the US, they uh, had to face the local gangs that were already there. There was the black gangs there, there were the, the Asian gangs were there, and then the Mexicans were there too. So I think that um, a lot of them were, you know, they were getting harassed, robbed, bullied, etc. So of course, then the Central Americans, starting by the Salvadorians, had to unite and create their own form of protection. Well, that was about to be my next question. Does it then become protection? Does it then become, you know, do you have to roll with a group to ensure that if you do bump into other groups that you've got to protect yourselves? That's the idea, you know, when when you join the gang, you, you join the gang thinking that you have protection, that you have friends, homies, that now you have family, you know, that now you have someone to back you up. You know, but it's not until you are in the gang that you find out that you just walked into hell. You know, it's 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 very complex. 
why have you walked into hell? And, and, and you say you've walked into hell, but you said the starting bit was listening to music and getting stoned. What's the hellish part? When did that start? Well, you know, when you first go in, you're like the baby in the gang, <laughs> you know. I, I was 14 when I joined 18, you know. So I was like the baby, you know. Like everybody liked me. Everybody wanted to have me around them. They, everybody wanted to buy me shoes, clothes. Uh, they wanted me to ride with them in their cars or whatever. But it became hell when I was asked to do little favors, you know. I ran away from home because my parents, well, my mom found out that I had joined 18. So she had my father, you know, come pick me up and take me to live with him. They had divorced by then. So um, I had to move in with my dad and he lived in a totally different area, you know, polluted with gangs as well. And it was kind of a big deal for me to be going from his home to my school that was in a different area. So me staying in there, I was already in danger, you know, because I attended a different school and I was known to be a gang member from a different gang, not from that area. So when I was uh, like around 16, I became one of the hitmen for the gang. Okay, that's no small big deal. That's a, that's a big jump. <laughs> Can we do the in-between steps, the small little jobs? Yeah, well, you know, at first, you know, you were asked, you know, to sell drugs, you know, mm-hmm. pick up little packages, drop them off, you know, hold a gun, a pistol, you know, maybe, you know, <laughs> steal a car, you know, a G-Ride. <laughs> but, but then, you know, when I guess when you, you are growing in the gang, when you are developing inside the gang, they see potential in you, you know. They see that you could be useful, you know. Me coming from El Salvador and, and, and having knowledge of, of, of war and violence, you know, it was, to me, seeing someone shot or, or someone laying on the streets dead wasn't a big deal. When did you first see, see that? Over here in El Salvador. Prior to going? Yeah, before I went to the U.S. So you had you seen it During the lot? Civil War. During the Civil War. Yeah. I don't know a lot about the Civil War. No. I know it was brutal. I know I had a, you know, it was really, really, you know, it's a tough time for El Salvador as a country. It was. But I don't know the history of it. And so I'm not going to ask about it now because it's something I need to research. Yeah. But just paint a picture of what it was like during their, like, living in a civil war. It, it was crazy. I mean, rumors of war. I was, I was down here with my grandmother. She was mm-hmm. the only uh, parent I had. And what I remember was just running, you know, running on the streets because they were dropping bombs, you know. People shooting from helicopters, you know, and, and people dead on the streets. A lot of recruitment going on back in those days. You know, teenagers were being recruited to be part of the army or the other group, you know. And that's one of the reasons why my father came back for me because uh, my grandma was worried that I was gonna get recruited to be either a soldier or the other, the, other, the other group. Uh, your face has really changed as you talk through yeah. that. I'll be looking forward to looking through back at the video just to watch that again. It's obviously got some quite ingrained memories in you. Of course, a lot of pain. Yeah. Yeah, okay. 
So you were desensitized to death and the brutality, yeah. the brutal side of this. So when you first started seeing things out in the US, it was no big deal. That Not a big deal. Okay. And then you became a hitman. Well, I guess, you know, as I grew up in the gang, you know, they saw that I wasn't the typical, you know, youngster. You know, I was always very active, very violent. And they saw that as a potential. You're not now, though, are you? Of course not. Not anymore. <laughs> Can I ask about your role as a hitman? You may. Okay. Have you killed a man? Oh, well, uh, my job had a lot to do with that. Okay. Do you live with... Do you live with a lot of things you have to process that, you, that you've done that bother you? And are things stuck with you now that you've done that you can't get rid of in your mind? I used to. Used to, yeah. Yeah, I used to blame myself a lot, and I couldn't forgive myself for a lot of things that I did in the past. But um, now I don't live with that anymore. Okay. I know that I've been forgiven, and I forgave myself as well. Okay. Why do you think it is so easy for young people to get involved in such violence? One of the patterns I've noticed, you know, I was covering in the UK, and I coming in Scotland, one of, one of the most fascinating interviews I actually did was with a surgeon, a surgeon who worked at Glasgow Royal Infirmary, and he talked to me about the range of injuries he dealt with, you know, kids coming in with multiple stab wounds or single stab wounds, explaining that someone could be stabbed in the heart and survive, and a small one in the butt could kill them because, you know, people don't know what's going on, and mm -hmm. the and then the impact, not just on the victim, but also the perpetrator and the family. It took me through so much. And the injuries, and showed me photos, and we're talking unbelievable, something like with machetes. Yeah. So I, I spoke to him, and, and I looked at what's going on in Scotland. I also looked at what's going on in London. You know, kids, they're all teenagers, running around with guns and knives, you know, and, and killing each other. They are just, there's no, no, no other way of uh, putting it. Why do you think kids of you know these kids it doesn't matter what part of the world they're in mm -hmm. ha are so desensitized to violence and so find it so easy to just go out and kill and, and harm someone out of my personal experience i could tell you that um one of the reasons why i joined the gang is because i needed attention mm -hmm. right yeah. love love i guess you yeah. could call it another reason was because I didn't want to be at my house because, you know, everything that was taking place in my home. You know, my parents used to fight a lot and they were always talking about divorce. And it was like my dream was, you know, being shattered. You know, everything that I always wanted, you know, a family, a mom, a dad, you know, brothers, sisters, was just, you know, disappearing. And that, generated a lot of anger within me, you know, and I didn't know how to express that. I had no one to listen to me, no one to talk to me, you know, and I accepted responsibility at a very young age. I mean, I used to take care of my little sister all day long. I used to cook for her, take her to school, pick her up, you know, and 
basically I had no time for me or no one interested in what I was going through. That is consistently something that's come up as a, um, as a problem is a lack of love, which is, which is it's strange when you think about it because we're talking about really tough kids going out and killing each other and fighting each other, like really tough, desensitized. But the, one of the root causes is a lack of love in the home. You know, there is also the, the break off of parents or abuse issues in the home, whether that's substance abuse or uh, physical abuse, you know, uh, lack of identity, poverty. But, but the one other thing that kept coming up is that the main thing is missing, the missing ingredient is love. I would add, though, that it, it's, um, you know, it's a thing about migration that people forget about. They don't talk mm-hmm. about it as they should, and people think of migration as such a positive thing, which it could be, right? Of course, when you're, you know, living in extreme poverty, to be able to go to the U.S. and work and provide for your family, it's, it's important. It's for survival, right? But what we see here in El Salvador, in the Northern Triangle, is that migration has had the adverse effect of complete family disintegration. So you have a lot of young children that are growing up without their parents because they've been forced to migrate to the US like Will's parents did. And so they grow up with a grandmother or whatever. And ultimately, you know, a lot of them just end up in the streets somehow. And then step two is when the parents come back and get the kid or have the kid be sent over up to the US, We're talking about separations that have been of 5, 10, 15 years. So the little kid that was, you know, 2, 3 years old when they left is now 14, 15 years old. I mean, it's like, it's your your family, but are you family, right? You're complete strangers. And then there's all the emotional stuff of the resentment of why did you leave me? And And then on top of that, you're going to a new country, new language, almost no family. I mean, it's it almost seems it seems like logical that this is exactly what would happen and it's precisely what happens to so many Central American youth who, you know, whose parents have been forced to leave them. Of course, nobody wants to leave their child, right? Like, what would force a parent to make the decision to leave their child? It has to be an extreme situation. And then when you I always ask my mom that. Yeah. What's that? You ask her? Why she left me. Yeah. And what does she say? She just cried. Yeah. That's exactly it. Nobody wants to leave their child. Absolutely nobody wants to leave their child unless they see that there's no other way out. And when they are reunited with this child, you know, the parent feels a lot of guilt because they left him. The child feels a lot of anger because he was left, right? So then there's a lot of confusion of how to reestablish the bond. And then this is where the gang comes in as like the family. How how many years was your gap with your grandma and your parents away? Um, it was like eight, eight years. You saw them in those eight years? Not once? Not once. I just knew that they were in the U.S. because um, my mom used to send my grandmother $100 a month okay. to yeah. take care of me. And after a minute, I guess, you know, she disappeared, my mom disappeared, and, and it was just my grandma taking care of me. And those were the most difficult, harsh years of my life, you know. We used to live nearly on, on nothing, 
you know. I, you know, I used to watch the other kids have toys and have their parents come pick them up after school and, you know, go to the park, hang out, and I was always on my own. Had a strong relationship with your grandmother? Um, or did you uh, give her a tough time? I used to give her a tough time, and, and, but I loved her. I mean, she was like my mom. She's, she's gone now? Yeah, she died. She passed away. But how long ago was that? Oh, back in 90, 98. 97, something like oh, yeah. that. Okay. And was that when you, you were in the U.S. at that point? I was in prison. You were in prison? Back in the U.S. We keep doing these leaps where there's <laughs> like, oh, I need a bit of that story filled in. Okay. So when you first went back to the States, you hadn't seen your mom for eight years. You were 11? 11. So you pretty much didn't know her. No, nah, I didn't know her. I didn't even know I had a little sister. Hmm. I found out when I got over there. Did you bond with your mom straight away? Did you no, f- not really. No. No. It was more like with my dad. Right. Yeah. Dad's a hero. Mom's mom. Yeah, I guess because he came back and picked me up yeah. and took me back over there. And, and you know, it was just it was very awkward, I guess. Was your, was your dad just a hardworking father or was he involved with some of the wrong kind of people? Um... The first person that I ever saw smoke pot was my dad. Okay. Yeah, but that's, that can just be a cool dad. Well, that was, back in the 80s, that wasn't a cool dad. Well, no, back in the 80s, that, that's like, that was like, I don't know, cocaine now. Yeah, right, people, yeah. Yeah, so, um, and then uh, sometimes he will act abusive with okay. my mom. And that kind of messed me up in the head, you okay. know. And I would just you know, grab my little sister and just hide in the room. We, we used to live in this one bedroom apartment and, and it was, it was crazy. Okay. So you end up in jail. I'm, I'm assuming this is something that's happened, that happened a few times. Am yeah. I, right? um, I went to juvenile halls for the first time when I was 14. Brutal. I got arrested for a G ride. Okay. I got out, went back for a pistol got out, went back for a robbery, got out, went back for an attempted murder, got out, went back for murder, got out, went back for selling drugs, and I made a criminal career out of my life. Okay. Spent a lot of time in prison then? A lot of time. How long did you get for the murder? I didn't get convicted for it. Okay. Yeah. Phew. It, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. But every guy in prison says that, right? I didn't do it. Well, you know, I believe that they practice justice in America. So if there's no evidence, you're not going to get convicted. What do you make of the federal prison system? i never been to federal. Oh, you didn't go to federal? No, only state prison. Okay, okay. Because I've been looking at the federal prison system because of a story of a guy called Ross Albrecht. Do you know Ross Albrecht? He's uh, created a website called The Silk Road, but anyway. It's not important for now. So what was state prison like? Brutal? It, it was, you know. I learned that if you're a Hispanic gang member in prison, you're supposed to show no feelings. Like you said, you know, when you're a little boy, all these little kids joining the gangs nowadays, they, they show, you know, this, this hard, hardcore part of them. You know, they're willing to fight. They're willing to stab someone. But in reality, they're just babies inside. Yeah. 
you know. You can you can tell you carry a lot of mo- emotion and feeling now. I can I can see it when you're making the film. Was there a lot of consistency between the people you spoke to and the people you interviewed and the gang members you'd met in their stories and yeah. their life stories? It, yeah, I mean it's they're all, all just the same. They're all very similar stories. I mean, we're talking about uh, about young people that have been abandoned by their parents somehow, live in extreme extreme um, poverty situations. And frankly, when you go to these communities, when you go to these communities, uh, at this point especially, the gang is all they ever know. There are no positive role models, right? There's not a, maybe there's a little church, but really the, the cool kids are the gang, the kids that are, that are offering the, um, the support and the, the respect and, the friendship is the gang so you when I started filming this I had a very square notion of I would never ever be somebody like them like it's very much a us versus them kind of thing and then the more you go to these communities and you live with these people and interact with them the more you're like well possibly if I was born in this community under these conditions possibly I would have also ended up in a similar situation yeah, I mean, these these cycles happen for a reason. Exactly. These patterns happen for a reason. Exactly. What's all this noise in the background? It's probably like church service. Yeah. Is it? <laughs> well, we're going to have to come to that, but there's a bit more to cover still. Mm-hmm. But I do want to touch on the faith um, side of things with you. So you spent a lot of time in prison, and then you end up here back in... El Salvador. El Salvador. Were you deported? Yeah. When were you deported? Back in 07. There's been a... I mean, this has been going on for years, but I was aware of it more recently because Human Rights Watch mm-hmm. posted an article about the, the, the dangers of people being deported. There are people being deported who've never lived here, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they have no family here, mm-hmm. and they have no connections, and they're being deported from the US, and they're at risk of being uh, lured into the gangs, tortured, abused, etc., etc. I mean, you obviously got strong opinions on this, but why is it only El Salvador I hear this about? Is this, it can't just be El Salvador. No, it's not. It's all of them. No, it's taking place all over. Yeah. The whole region. I mean, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Mexico, America. Yeah. But are there any ways to appeal these decisions if you've spent your entire life in the U.S.? You're conditioned to the U.S. You've never lived in El Salvador. How how is this happening? I don't understand. You this. can appeal. The thing is, you know, for example, in cases like Will, and a lot of people, when they are when they get taken into custody by immigration, you know, a lot of people spend at least a year as just to hear just to wait for a hearing before a judge, and then they give them the opportunity to appeal, and they're like, well, you can appeal, but you might be here for another five years, six seven years, years, seven years, whatever, and right? And still get deported. And still get deported. So people are like, you know, screw that. Like, yeah. just deport me. I don't care. You I don't want to be here. Deportation. Exactly. Get the, get, get the process going. Yeah. So, um, so a lot of people just do sign a voluntary deportation because, frankly, they just don't want to be... In, in you know prison anymore basically they don't want to be in detention anymore so it really gives them no way out I think that the fear and Will can tell you his story because he also was deported with no fa- really no family nobody I mean and and he'll tell you his story on how 
even when he was on the deportation plane, he wanted to change. He didn't want to be a gang member anymore. But then when you're here and you have no resources to support you with the transition, um, folks that do have criminal histories do just, you know, they eventually have no choice but to seek the gang to, you know, for survival, right? And, and I know that a lot of people, when they're getting deported, they're terrified that the first thing that's going to happen is, is they're going to be executed and stuff. But I think more than that, more than the, the risk that they face of death, which is what you know, Human Rights Watch publishes, I think the bigger story here should be, why are there no resources for deportees? Why are we deporting people and to nothing. to nothing, right? Not giving them a place to stay. A lot of people don't have a place to stay. Not connecting them to possible job opportunities. We're just like, thank you. Like, go deal with it. Go deal with it. So you think the U.S. should be providing something here to in- integrate well, people back? Frankly, or, because we know the resources of the El Salvadoran government are limited. Well, it's interesting that you say that because the U.S. already provides hundreds of millions of dollars in security aid to, you know, fund the police and fund all these things. So we're already funding a lot of things here. Why aren't we funding? Uh, uh, why why isn't there clear policy on how to deal with with deportees? It's it's. Well, we're talking about political money flow here, which is <laughs> we always it would always never be in the way that you and I would think money should be spent. And, uh, Absolutely. I mean, it, it, that's that's true, but the reason that that's, it's not being spent is because the story, the narrative is wrong. Uh-huh. I mean, the narrative is wrong. The narrative is that El Salvador, the problem is just the gangs. The gang members are the ones that are doing everything, and that's part of the problem. We also have a problem here with incredible human rights violations by the police and the military. So then people aren't trusting of the police and the military. They go into these communities, round up young people, throw them in prison, beat them, kill a bunch of them, really, right? So we have a problem with, with impunity. I'm and missing. Yeah, they a lot of kids. So, you know, you hear a lot of El Salvador, oh, the homicide rates are down, but the disappearances rates are up, right? So why are we talking? Where are these people disappearing to? That's an issue. And then corruption. I mean, the past... Before the last president, we haven't gotten his corruption numbers out yet, but you know, we wow. had three. So, when I came over, somebody <laughs> said to me, His election manifesto was, We've got enough money, we need to stop stealing it. Yeah, is that, is that right? Is yeah, it, I mean, I might true. have the words wrong, but yeah, yeah. I mean, this before uh, Sanchez Seren, which was the yeah. president before Bukele, I mean, those three presidents, I think they, they, collectively they'd stolen close to a billion dollars. Unbelievable, I mean, it's unbelievable. Crazy. Like, each of them were stealing upwards of 300 million dollars in a country of El Sal- like uh, the size of El Salvador. I mean, that's tiny. All that money is so this country would be like Switzerland, basically. Where are they now? Where is the money, though? Does, any- I- does anyone follow the money? Yeah, well, the money's missing. Of course. <laughs> and so are they. They are missing. One of them is in Nicaragua. One of them is in prison. I mean, in, like, beautiful conditions. <laughs> like, in a really nice, fancy prison. You know, so we, it's, 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 it's really what the government here does to the people is, is laugh in their face, basically. It's, that's not isolated to uh, El Salvador. It's not isolated just to South America. Oh, God. This is everywhere you go, you see this. But the corruption levels you see here and like in other countries, maybe I would compare it to Venezuela and stuff like that. I mean, it's well, just Well, I was just reading today about Chavez's daughter is the richest person yep. in... Um, Venezuela, she's worth 4.2 billion dollars, yep. 
and um, we still have people marching on the streets, you know, celebrating Chavez's populist policies. So look, look, I get it. These these patterns are everywhere. Uh, Will, what I did want to ask is something very interesting. Valentina said there is that you're already thinking of leaving the gang when you got on the plane. My assumption, based on historical kind of readings and documentaries about gangs, is that it's not you can't just leave a gang, right? Yeah, I mean, I had the idea of leaving the gang because um, when I was back in the U.S., I used to watch a lot of docu documentaries about what gangs were like down here. And I used to tell myself, I don't want to be a part of that. You know, it's, like I said, you know, different rules, different codes, different structure. What worried you? I was in INS and I used to watch these documentaries about, you know, people getting chopped off, yeah. chopped up, women and children being killed, extortioning the poor. You know, and that's not something uh, American gangsters do. So the American gangsters was mainly gang on gang crime. Gang on gang, or or just drug, drug Drugs. trafficking, robbing, stealing cars, or or just taxing the, the drug dealers. Yeah. The people with money, not the poor. Whereas here, yeah, it's going a step too far. It's crossing the line for you. Yeah, it's just it's it's a different scale. It's a different level. Yeah, something so not gangster. <laughs> well, also, I'm talking to Danielle here. Do you know Danielle from previously? Danielle and John, mm -hmm. this place. So when I did my interview with them, one of the things that I found most shocking was also they talked about the ages of the girls being dragged into sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, 12 years old. This isn't even... You know, this is two years older than my own daughter, right? Yeah. This is... This is ridiculously young. This isn't like 15, 16, 17 mm -hmm. teenagers what you would be highly concerned about. I, I was shocked about that. Mm. There seems to be a strong moral compass and a moral code between gang members and the rules and the laws by which they follow. Mm -hmm. Yet there seems to be a, a very low moral compass with the things they're willing to do. And I find that really confusing. Yeah, it's very contradicting. I mean... You have, um, listen, like the truth is that every gang member has a fam has family that they love as vicious as the, as the person may be. He has a mother that he loves or a father that he loves or a sibling that he loves. So I think that, and Will can of course speak this from firsthand, I think that gang members are always in conflict with what they do and what they feel and what they do and what they really believe. But then, you know, the whole group mentality thing comes into play, right? So if the whole group is doing something, then the individual gang member will start participating. And, you know, in the U.S., you don't have to extort the poor little pupusa lady because there's good drug money. You could get a job that, you know, that, that pays well or whatever. There's, there, there's money up there that doesn't, that, that, that there isn't the need to really target the poor. But in El Salvador... There isn't that much money, and I mean, the gang has money to a certain degree, but it's not like the Mexican cartels that are billion, you know, billionaires. I mean, the gang, you still, when you go to these communities and you talk to active gang members, you're like, you know, why do you look so poor? Like, why do you look so, so raggedy, you know? I mean, the leaders are very well dressed and stuff like that, but the, the lower ranks, the, the, the foot soldiers are very very poor right so when there isn't a good flow of money then you start extorting 
your own people that have nothing. And so it starts creating this just like this whole complete breakdown of the social and moral fabric of a place. And that's what, what is happening here. So, so you're coming back, you've already made a decision that you want to leave the gang. Were you still attracted into the gangs when you first got back? No, 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 definitely not. I had a change of mentality, I guess, when I was facing deportation, because um, I was going to lose my life. I mean, you know, I had a girlfriend back in the States, a five-year-old little boy. My family, my friends, my house, my car. <laughs> I was going to lose everything. So I thought to myself, I'm just going to go down there, turn around, and come back, like many legal people do, you know. But um, once I got down here, I found out that it was, it's very expensive to do that. <laughs> and I was basically homeless out here. No family, no relatives, no home, no nothing. I was staying on the streets. and Are you literally just left to get off the plane, goodbye? Yeah. At the airport? Just like that. They don't give you a taxi, they don't give you any money? No. Nothing? No, they gave me my little box that I had in prison. An extra pair of jeans. Are you deported because you're in prison? Yeah. Right. I was okay. In yeah. Okay. So, as, as as bad as the process is, you know, I don't have to. I feel I can say to you, I can understand why they they do this, right? You know, if you're a career criminal, you're you know up until eleven, you're El Salvadorian. I can understand that. Maybe the process is awful. Yeah. You understand that. Of course, of course. So that's almost like part of the punishment, right? Serve your time. I, I, I know there's consequences, yeah. you know, to every decision you make. Uh -huh. you know, whether it's good or bad, you're always going to have consequences. So um, I believe that me coming down here was a consequence of my bad decisions, yeah. you know, bad behavior, criminal, you know, life that I had. But looking at the human side of it, you know, it was very shocking for me, you know, just losing everything, you know. It was part of the punishment, like you said. And facing the reality down here, you know, different culture, different economy, different standards, different everything. Um, what's your son now, 18? No, he's 21. 21 now. Yeah. You in touch with him? Um, a little bit. A little bit, okay, okay. So that must have been very hard for you. Yeah, it, like, was, it was heartbreaking. And he's essentially gone through a similar same cycle. Process, yeah. the same, same process. The same story repeating yeah. itself again. Yeah. Do you know if he's doing okay? Do you know if he's avoided the same mistakes? Or is this just it's, a cycle? It's a cycle. Are you a granddad yet? I somehow feel guilty for... Or what he's going through. You but know. Do you know what he's going through? You actually, do you, you know enough. Of course. Yeah. Of course. But has he made you a granddad yet? Not, not, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. But I, I feel, I feel guilty because of his behavior. Okay. You know, I feel that I have some kind of responsibility in that. Okay. You know, because I'm, I'm doing the same thing my dad did, abandoned me. You know. Yeah, in a different way. In a different way, yeah. You know. You would have stayed, but then maybe, maybe you know, there's no guarantee you would have been a great father there, right? You know, if you're still in that mentality of running the gangs and 
get involved in stuff. You don't. I had the chance to change. Yeah. Many times. Yeah. But I chose not to. Okay. So do you feel like the deportation in some way was like some divine intervention for you to get your shit together? For me, it was. Yeah. Um, for me, it was. So how do you piece your life back together when you're pushed off a plane with a box and? How does that happen? I I guess you know, I hit rock bottom. You know, completely alone, no money, no nothing. Just my life broke into a bunch of pieces. And suddenly someone speaks to me about, you know, uh, hope, faith, someone that loves me the way I am and is willing to forgive me. And I'm hearing this message in prison again, down here in El Salvador. So you ended up in prison here? Mm -hmm. How quickly was that? Within the first three months. Wow. For robbery? For robbery. Because you didn't have anything? I didn't have any, any money. You know, like, I have not met you, but a lot of this stuff is so predictable. It's, I it's mean, so predictable. it's so obvious. Yeah, it's so you know, obvious. You try to look for a job, they don't hire you. Yeah. You yeah. look different. You speak different. You know. So do you get racism coming back here? You, so you, you had get stigmatization, directions. you know, discrimination, yeah. you know, because of the way you look. Just because you, ha you, you are a deportee. It's almost like you never truly had a home because once you got, you went to America and you were different. Yeah. You got settled, you came back here and you're different. Exactly. Both worlds. Yeah, you feel more at home here, I'm guessing, now. Yeah, now my life is different. Yeah. Uh, I'm married now. I have a wife, a beautiful little girl. Yeah, congratulations. I have a church and my life is different. But you miss LA sometimes. Definitely. <laughs> I love LA. I'm a massive it's fan. I love it. I like Venice a lot. Yeah, it's nice. <laughs> That's the bit I like. I like the beach. I'm a big fan. So I get that. But I like El Salvador. It's growing on me. Yeah. It's good. It's a beautiful country. So talk to me about the faith bit. You obviously met somebody. Somebody's going to come into your life and introduce this to you. How does that go from being an introduction to you to starting to... I don't know, how do we say this? Starting to define this part of your life. Well, I was in prison down here in El Salvador dying of tuberculosis. Okay. I was in there with no family, no income, no nothing. And, and I was dying. No medical aid. And suddenly someone comes around evangelizing, spreading the gospel. They asked me to let them pray for me. And my answer was no. You know, like, I don't want to know anything about God, you know. Where is God? I mean, where was God when I got deported? And so my, my answer was rejection. But they were so persistent. They continued to tell me, you know, he loves you and he knows what you're going through, blah, blah, blah. So then I told myself, okay, I'm just going to let these people pray over me and then I'll die at peace. And something um, supernatural happened when they prayed over me. They asked me to kneel down. They were like, get on your knees so we could pray over you. And I was like, no, I don't do that. <laughs> you know, I don't get on my knees, you know. I'm this proud, tough gang member. I don't show my emotion and never show any weakness. Gangs, gang members don't do that. 
So I was like, just pray over me like this, standing up. But the minute they started praying for me and put their hands over me, on me, I just had this, this, this weird feeling, you know, like I felt this, this warm feeling just descending upon me, just from the top of my head, running down to the bottom of my feet. And I felt like crying. And I'm fighting with this feeling, you know. They praying over me. People are just saying, you know, forgive him, Lord, for all his sins. And, and I'm over here fighting with, with this feeling, you know. Like I'm telling myself, don't cry. You don't supposed to show any feelings. Come on now, you're better than this. You've been to California State Prison, you know. <laughs> you, you show no, no weakness. But I couldn't, I, I couldn't help it. I ended up falling on my knees crying, sweating, crying with this warm feeling all over my body. And suddenly one of the guys that was praying over me asked me if I wanted to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And my answer was, yes, I do. And so I, I confessed Jesus' name and I accepted him as my Lord and Savior. I went back to my cell sick and I couldn't stop crying. The whole night I was crying and crying and crying. It's like I felt that someone had given me an opportunity. Like someone had really taken the time to know what I was going through. And my, after that, my life changed. My life just completely changed. How long into your filming did you meet Will? Well, I met him at the beginning, right? Like, I, we, it was an accident how I came across the church. It was for a separate, just an interview for an NGO, I believe. And, and then I, I went back and I said, hey, like, I'm really interested in your story. Can I, can I keep filming? And so we kind of kept filming on and off. And then I sold a, a smaller video to The Economist. Uh -huh. And that video went viral. It exploded. Is it the one in the room where they're all together? There's one. I mean, there's one. There's one where there's a whole room of people praying together, but mm -hmm. inside, it, inside it, of prison. Inside the prison. Yeah, yeah, that one. That one. Yeah. That's a very powerful bit of video. Yeah, yeah. So that video, when we went to, we arranged so Will would return to the prison where he had spent most of his sentence in for the first time. It was his return first time they they had had a, a church service of that sort especially somebody coming from the outside world back in so then they let us film that and um that video went viral and then a bunch of international media started going to will's church and his profile just like exploded but even with that I knew that my my intention with the church wasn't over just because of that one news video that that we'd published I knew that there was a larger story. I, I knew there was a movie there. So as news came and went and all of the, the fanfare came and went, I've always stayed there, you know, on and off, right? Because uh -huh. I don't live here full time. I, I come here, film for a little bit, then leave. And, then, and, um, and, I, and, 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 this, and, and the movie has become so much more than the church. It's, it's, it's I, I believe this movie is a... I don't want to say like a social protest, but it's more of like a, a an a, an exposed an exposure of what's happening in this country. I mean, El Salvador is a product of 
everything that goes wrong with American foreign policy. From the very beginning up until this point, everything step by step that could go wrong with American foreign policy is happening here in El Salvador. And I'm not saying that all American foreign policy to El Salvador is wrong because, you know, USAID and stuff, they are... I think that now they're opening their eyes and they're saying, oh my God, we need to, like, fix this mess beyond just giving money to the police so they could go and, you know, control the communities, which is really complete repression, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that they're trying to change it, but, um, but the damage is there. The damage is done, right? So now to get this country out of, out of this mess, it's, it, it's, it's going to take a lot. And I think specifically the first step is it's going to take the perpetrators of the pain, which in this case were the gang members, to step up and say, okay, enough is enough. We need to put an end to this violence. And it really has to start with them because only they can persuade other people to stop killing. Were you religious yourself? I'm very spiritual. I mean, I, I definitely, I believe in God. I'm not evangelical <laughs> or to the, <laughs> I haven't been baptized in that, but I'm, I'm a very, very spiritual person. And I do believe that people, spirituality in whatever, whatever way it means to you. Some people, it's their relationship with God. Some people, it's a different type of relationship. But I do think that there needs to be something there that's unexplainable that, that, that gives you hope in a time of complete despair. Because when you are in the, the depths of despair, as we've all been, but especially Will and, and, and folks in, in his situation are, you know, it, it's unexplainable. Only God can do these sorts of things. Only spirituality can really move somebody that has done so much wrong, has caused so much pain to then say, okay, not only do I want to stop, but I'm sorry. Like, why did I do this? So it's unexplainable. And how much success have you had? You've obviously, it has been successful, but how successful has it been in getting people out of the gangs? And, and profile-wise, is it all ages? Yeah. Because yeah, um, people do secretly, if you get most gang members, I've been told, you get them on your own. Yeah. And this might be something that's consistent between the UK and here. If you can get them in a private conversation, they want out. Yeah. Nobody's enjoying it. Yeah. Definitely. It's, it's a big movement taking place in, in our society especially inside the prisons. Um, when I first converted to Christianity, it was a small group of Christians. And for some reason, I had this, this, this urge, this, this one of, of telling people what God had done in my life, my experience, my spiritual experience. I wanted to tell others about it. And so um, I started preaching inside the prison, you know, telling people about God and and that little small group of Christians, it multiplied. It, it was maybe about 40 or maybe less when I converted to Christianity. But then those 40 became 100, then those 100 became 2, then 500, then 1,000. Now it's a Christian movement inside the prison. It's, it's a, a total of 1,600 men. And the gangs operate within the prisons. Are you getting any pushback from within the prison because uh, it's almost like you're doing the opposite of recruitment you're taking people away is that causing problems of course okay of course i'm not a very popular person with the gangs down here okay but they know the work that i do and somehow respect it well it's a bit like here i know the work that's being done here is respected and you know john and danielle told me in my interview they had to talk to gang members they came to 
but they supported them in the end and actually they can also be helpful and same with Michael you know he says that they're gang members they don't want their kids in the gangs or their brothers in the gangs so you have that mix of Plus, El Salvador here, especially, you know, uh, it's a very, very Christian country by nature. Gang members are God-fearing, believe it or not. And there's a saying, you don't mess with God and you don't mess with the gang. Those are the two things that you don't mess with. So even though, like we said earlier, it's very contradictory, their actions, but a lot of them, I would say, believe in God very much so. God-fearing. They're very, very God-fearing. So that gives (laughs) Will's work a little bit more support. So, we're gonna we'll close out, but I'd I'd like at some point to come and visit the church. I'd like to see it myself. Yeah, it's nearby. It's next door. Okay. So, a couple of things to just finish out. Will, if people want to follow more of what you're doing here, they want to find out more about the church. Can you explain to them where they can go? And then, afterwards, if you can explain where the state of the film is, mm-hmm. and if people want to follow more of that, where they should go for that as well. well and pain. I think I've got a feeling we're gonna do a follow up on this at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Well. We are a self-funded church. We receive no international help or aid. So we don't even have a web page or nothing like that, you know. Uh, we have a Facebook page. That's what you need these days, Facebook and Instagram. Facebook hmm. page. Uh, the name of the church is Ebenezer. Okay. And the name of this program, it's uh, Footsteps of Hope. Okay. Uh, and like Valentina said right here, if you want to hear more about us, just watch the videos. My email address is on the videos, my phone number as well, and just contact me, Only, even through you. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll share it all out in of the show course. notes as well, and the film. When do we get to see that? Well, we are right now in post-production. Okay, the tough course. Part. Always need money for post-production, so if you want to see this film, help us edit it. And, uh, and, and, and the, this film has taken a while to make because it's such a complex topic and things change. And even Will's mission is cha- has changed ever since we started filming. And I don't know if I can share this, Will, but um, at, the, you know, at the beginning, it, Will was just uh, catering 18th Street gang members. And now he's, his vision, he's starting to do this work. Now he's trying to do 18 and MS. And for the first time, the, the church where he started evangelizing people, I mean, not the church, the prison where he started evangelizing people, it became so successful. Like, so many people converted. So many, it was originally an 18th Street prison. So many people converted that prison authorities said, well, let's try to bring in MS members into this prison. Mind you, they had to separate them because they were killing each, yeah. killing each other. That prison. So they started bringing MS members into the prison to see if they could coexist. And it's been successful wow. thus far. And so, this the rivalry, the MS 18th Street rivalry that has caused tens of thousands of deaths. So many deaths. So, so many deaths. This rivalry, this hatred for one another. Now we're starting to see tiny little lights of hope when you have somebody like Will and a former MS person come together and talk hug to their own people. Embrace each other. Hug each other and talk wow. to their people and Worship say, hey guys, together. like we need to stop. You know? And that's why I say that, yes, these you know, these missionary programs are important. There's you, hope you, for El Salvador. Yeah, like USAID is important. All that stuff is important, but the change is going to come from the gang itself, period, end of story. If the gang does not decide to change and put an end to this, nothing, no amount of money, programs, which I think they're important because I th- at one point I would like to make is uh, that Will is doing the work on the, you know, these churches are doing the work on this on the spiritual side, but these kids, they need work. 
you know, they need to provide for their families. So this is when the state and everyone else needs to step in. Society needs to step in and say, okay, we're going to hire you. But mm -hmm. nobody's hiring former gang members. So, you know, inside of prison, it's a control environment. They can be Christian all they want. They can be reading the Bible all they want. But then when they come here and they have families that they need to feed and nobody wants to hire them, people, the police is beating harassing. the harassing them and beating the crap out of them and disrespecting them. Nobody is giving them support. Will hears with the Bible saying, please keep believing. Things are going to change. Things are going to change. And they're, I tell you, man, like they, they're hanging in there. They're really, really trying to change. But then they're faced with a society, frankly, Rejection. right now that completely rejects mm -hmm. them. Unbelief. Like complete disbelief. Nobody believes them in complete rejection. So my point is religion can only go so far. Yeah. Then we need the government and society and everybody to come and also do their part of, of, of the work so then this can really put an end to it. But, you know, war war is profitable. And it's profitable for El Salvador for this thing. To keep their reputation keep, of being a violent country. Exactly. So if there's no if, if, if there are no gangs in El Salvador, will there no be violence. international aid? Right? What's mm. the purpose then of, of governments sending money to El Salvador if there's no problem to fix, if there's no war? So we have to also be honest of... Like you said, follow the money. I mean, this is a very, very profitable situation for some people that don't want things to change. And in the meantime, there's thousands of collateral lives being lost, thousands of people caught in the middle that, um, you know, that, 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 that's, why, that's why where we are. But the fact that the gang wants to, there's lights of hope within the gang that they want to change. And a lot of them will, will tell you, a lot of them... We'll tell, we'll, we'll, like you said, we'll say, I don't want to be in this life anymore, mm. but what else is there for me? They, they want something to look forward to. Yeah. You know, a lot of the active gang members that I interact with, they tell me, okay, Will, you're asking me to abandon the gang, but what you got to offer? Where's my job? <laughs> I need a job. Yeah. I have two kids. I have yeah. a wife. I got to pay rent. I got to pay my bills. You know what mm. I'm saying? Yeah. God. Big story. Exactly, yeah. God. <laughs> I could, yeah. Just mean without thinking about it. Um, it's fascinating, and um, I'm, I'm sure if I'd met you 25 years ago, I'd probably sh been shit scared. And <laughs> now you just seem like a, a really lovely guy. Thank you. Really chilled. I could sense a lot of emotion through that. So thank you for sharing that with me. I'm really looking forward to this film. Thank you. How long do you think post-production is going to take? I mean. The our hope, depending how fast the money comes in, but our hope is that the film will be done, will be out by the end of the year. How much do you need? We need money. Wow. <laughs> we need money. I mean, we're in very, very early stages of, of editing right now. I've actually had to edit a good chunk of it myself, but I'm not an editor. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's funny because I've been shooting this whole thing pretty much on my own up until last December when a production company came in and they said to me, they're like, this is wonderful, but we need we need nicer glass and we need a whole this and that. And so I, I was like, okay, like, you know, I did the experiment of hiring, they gave me money to hire a crew and all this. And we had this beautiful Alexa camera and this beautiful glass and stuff. And then it was, it was ruined because when I showed up with a full crew to the church, to the people that know, have known me for three years, the people that trust me for three years, here I come. Yeah, here I come with yeah. like three other additional guys that they've never seen before. And the whole dynamic of the film changed. It was, everything was acted. It was very like, it wasn't real. So 
I, I think that, I mean, what I would say to a lot of filmmakers is, you know, trust your instinct, especially when you're making these movies. Yeah, it's, it's nice to have very nice cameras and very nice image, the quality of the image. But what matters is the content, is the rawness of the emotion. It's the that intimacy that that you can only get after so much trust and so much time. And that's, if I wanted to make a film about the gangs in a month, I would have come here with a big production and done, gotten the, the tour of the, of the homicide sites and gotten the tour of the drugs and all this. Like, all of that has been done. Mm -hmm. But the images that I have, for example, of a heavily tatted guy with his 10-year-old son, you know, doing homework, playing basketball, you know, caressing his face, and you're like, these hands have killed, you know what I mean? Yeah. That intimacy, which I think is going to make people very uncomfortable, because I know, I already know what they're going to say <laughs> to me, like, oh, why are you being friends with these people? But I think the point that I want to make is, we're more similar than we'd like to believe. You know, mm -hmm. there's a very thin line between a murderer and an honest person. We're very, very similar in our emotions, in our thoughts, in our aspirations. We have family that we love. We're very, very similar. So we need to find common ground on that front and work to heal the wounds of what was caused for an array of issues. And one last point I'd like to make is these kids that are in prison right now, these kids that are gang members now, they're being, you know, judged for a decision that they made when they were very young. Mm -hmm. A lot of them were 12, 13 years old when they started being involved. And they're paying for that price much later in life. So as it's adults. also as adults. So it's also looking at that. How can you judge a person for a decision they made as a child, right? So it's it's a lot of man, I'm telling you, El Salvador has a long way to go. Yeah. Like this society is not open arms, kumbaya, like let's all have peace. That's not the case like they did in the Civil War where they signed the peace treaties. That's not the case now. We have a society that's very, very rejectful of the gang. And close-minded. And very close-minded because they've suffered a lot, but which is this. Well, it's, it is fascinating. Um, I will come back. I will come and see the church. But, um, I'd like to know a bit more about the work you do inside the prison. I think that's super You're interesting. Welcome. But I hope the film's out soon. But I appreciate yeah. both of you giving me your time. Thank you. Sorry, it's such a short visit, but uh, I think people will be fascinated to hear this. So good luck to both of you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Defiance. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Valentina and Will. I found it an incredible story. So a massive thanks for them for coming on the show and sharing their stories. I have previously covered El Salvador when I interviewed John and Danielle Snyder, who run a charity in San Salvador, helping those with addictions and victims of sex trafficking. So you might want to check that out as well. Now, Will has a remarkable story, but this is a common problem in El Salvador. I've been observing the parallels myself when looking into gang culture in the UK and even though El Salvador is far more violent and has a much worse gang problem than the UK, the ingredients that push young people to join gangs appear to be very similar. So I'm going to continue looking into gang culture as I travel. I'm probably going to start looking in most places and just see if what the parallels are, what the ingredients are, see what we can learn about this. If you've got any questions about this, you want to reach out to me, you can drop me an email. My email address is peter at defiance.news. Before we close out, I do need to thank my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin, consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com. Also, if you want to support the show, please leave me a review on iTunes or subscribe to the show. Follow me on social media or share it out with your friends and family. If you have any questions about this show or any other show I've made, please feel free to email me on peter at defiance.news.